0: Yes, come in, come in. Ah, it's raining black cats and demon dogs out there. Why don't you sit down and make yourself comfortable? Fate brings you here on this very special night. Welcome to the Paranormal Dad's Halloween Special. Join us as we go in search of the world's monsters, myths, and mysteries right here on Paranormal Dads. on this very special Halloween, you will enjoy three tales read to you by the Paranormal Dads. There will be some scares, and there'll be some jokes. I do know some vampire puns, but they all suck. <coughs> Without further ado, please enjoy our first tale, The Story of a Sailor Lost at Sea who finds himself in the company of an evil so ancient, it defies reason.
1: Dagon by H.P. Lovecraft I am writing this under an appreciable mental strain, since by tonight I shall be no more Penniless and at the end of my supply of the drug which alone makes life endurable, I can bear the torture no longer, and shall cast myself from this garret window into the squalid street below. Do not think from my slavery to morphine that I am a weakling or a degenerate. When you have read these hastily scrawled pages, you may guess, though never fully realize, why it is I must have forgetfulness or death." It was in one of the most open and least frequented parts of the broad Pacific that the packet of which I was supercargo fell a victim to the German Sea Raider. The Great War was then at its very beginning, and the ocean forces of the Hun had not completely sunk to their later degradation, so that our vessel was made legitimate prize, whilst we of her crew were treated with all the fairness and consideration due us as naval prisoners. So liberal indeed was the discipline of our captors that five days after we were taken, I managed to escape alone in a small boat with water and provisions for a good length of time. When I finally found myself adrift and free, I had but little idea of my surroundings. Never a competent navigator, I could only guess vaguely by the sun and stars that I was somewhat south of the equator. Of the longitude I knew nothing— and no island or coastline was in sight. The weather kept fair, and for uncounted days I drifted aimlessly beneath the scorching sun, waiting either for some passing ship or to be cast on the shores of some habitable land. But neither ship nor land appeared, and I began to despair in my solitude upon the heaving vastness of unbroken blue. The change happened whilst I slept. Its details I shall never know, for my slumber, though troubled and dream-infested, was continuous. When at last I awaked, it was to discover myself half-sucked into a slimy expanse of hellish black mire, which extended about me in monotonous undulations as far as I could see, and in which my boat lay grounded some distance away. Though one might well imagine that my first sensation would be of wonder at so prodigious and unexpected a transformation of scenery, I was in reality more horrified than astonished, for there was in the air and in the rotting soil a sinister quality which chilled me to the very core. The region was putrid with the carcasses of decaying fish and of other less describable things which I saw protruding from the nasty mud of the unending plain. Perhaps I should not hope to convey in mere words the unutterable hideousness that can dwell in absolute silence and barren immensity. There was nothing within hearing and nothing in sight save a vast reach of black slime. Yet the very completeness of the stillness and homogeneity of the landscape oppressed me with a nauseating fear. The sun was blazing down from a sky which seemed to me almost black in its cloudless cruelty, as though reflecting the inky marsh beneath my feet. As I crawled into the stranded boat, I realized that only one theory could explain my position. Through some unprecedented volcanic upheaval, a portion of the ocean floor must have been thrown to the surface "'exposing regions for which innumerable millions of years "'had lain hidden under unfathomable watery depths. "'So great was the extent of the new land "'which had risen beneath me "'that I could not detect the faintest noise "'of the surging ocean, "'strain my ears as I might, "'nor were there any sea-fowl "'to prey upon the dead things. "'For several hours I sat thinking, "'or brooding in the boat, which lay upon its side and afforded a slight shade as the sun moved across the heavens. As the day progressed, the ground lost some of its stickiness, and seemed likely to dry sufficiently for traveling purposes in a short time. That night I slept but little, and the next day I made for myself a pack containing food and water, preparatory to an overland journey in search of the vanished sea and possible rescue." on the third morning, I found the soil dry enough to walk upon with ease. The odor of the fish was maddening, but I was too much concerned with graver things, to mind so slight an evil, and set out boldly for an unknown goal. All day I forged steadily westward, guided by a faraway hummock which rose higher than any other elevation on the rolling desert. That night I encamped, and on the following day still traveled toward the hummock, though that object seemed scarcely nearer than when I had first espied it. By the fourth evening I attained the base of the mound, which turned out to be much higher than it had appeared from a distance, an intervening valley setting it out in sharper relief from the general surface. Too weary to ascend, I slept in the shadow of the hill. I know not why my dreams were so wild that night, but ere the waning and fantastically gibbous moon had risen far above the eastern plain, I was awake in a cold perspiration, determined to sleep no more. Such visions as I had experienced were too much for me to endure again, and in the glow of the moon I saw how unwise I had been to travel by day. Without the glare of the parching sun, my journey would have cost me less energy indeed i now felt quite able to perform the ascent which had deterred me at sunset picking up my pack i started for the crest of the eminence i have said that the unbroken monotony of the rolling plain was a source of vague horror to me but i think my horror was greater when i gained the summit of the mound and looked down the other side into an immeasurable pit or canyon whose black recesses the moon had not yet soared high enough to illuminate, I felt myself on the edge of the world, peering over the rim into a fathomless chaos of eternal night. Through my terror ran curious reminiscences of paradise lost and of Satan's hideous climb through the unfashioned realms of darkness. As the moon climbed higher in the sky... I began to see that the slopes of the valley were not quite so perpendicular as I had imagined. Ledges and outcroppings of rock afforded fairly easy footholds for a descent, whilst after a drop of a few hundred feet, the declivity became very gradual. Urged on by an impulse, which I cannot definitely analyze, I scrambled with difficulty down the rocks and stood on the gentler slope beneath, "'gazing into the Stygian steps where no light had yet penetrated. "'All at once my attention was captured "'by a vast and singular object on the opposite slope, "'which rose steeply about a hundred yards ahead of me, "'an object that gleamed whitely "'in the newly bestowed rays of the ascending moon. "'That it was merely a gigantic piece of stone, "'I soon assured myself.' but I was conscious of a distinct impression that its contour and position were not altogether the work of nature. A closer scrutiny filled me with sensations I cannot express, for despite its enormous magnitude and its position in an abyss which had yawned at the bottom of the sea since the world was young, I perceived beyond a doubt that the strange object was a well-shaped monolith, whose massive bulk had known the worksmanship and perhaps the worship of living and thinking creatures. Dazed and frightened, yet not without a certain thrill of the scientist's or archaeologist's delight, I examined my surroundings more closely. The moon, now near the zenith, shone weirdly and vividly above the towering steeps that hemmed in the chasm, and revealed the fact that a far-flung body of water flowed at the bottom, winding out of sight in both directions, and almost lapping my feet as I stood on the slope. Across the chasm, the wavelets washed the base of the Cyclopean monolith, on whose surface I could now trace both inscriptions and crude sculptures. The writing was in a system of hieroglyphics unknown to me, and unlike anything I had ever seen in books, consisting for the most part of conventionalized aquatic symbols such as fishes, eels, octopi, crustaceans, mollusks, whales, and the like. Several characters obviously represented marine things which were unknown to the modern world, but whose decomposing forms I had observed on the ocean-risen plain. It was the pictorial carving, however, that did most to hold me spellbound, plainly visible across the intervening water on account of their enormous size, were an array of bas reliefs whose subjects would have excited the envy of Doré. I think that these things were supposed to depict men, at least a certain sort of men, though the creatures were shown disporting like fishes in waters of some marine grotto, or paying homage at some monolithic shrine which appeared to be under the waves as well. Of their faces and forms I dare not speak in detail, for the mere remembrance makes me grow faint. Grotesque beyond the imagination of a Poe or a Bulwer, they were damnably human in general outline, despite webbed hands and feet, shockingly wide and flabby lips, glassy bulging eyes and other features less pleasant to recall curiously enough they seem to have been chiseled badly out of proportion with their scenic background for one of the creatures was shown in the act of killing a whale represented as but little larger than himself i remarked as i say their grotesqueness and strange size but in a moment decided that they were merely the imaginary gods of some primitive fishing or seafaring tribe, some tribe whose last descendant had perished eras before the first ancestor of the Piltdown or Neanderthal man was born. Awestruck at this unexpected glimpse into a past beyond the conception of the most daring anthropologist, I stood musing whilst the moon cast queer reflections on the silent channel before me. Then suddenly I saw it with only a slight churning to mark its rise to the surface, the thing slid into view above the dark waters. Vast, polyphemus-like, and loathsome, it darted like a stupendous monster of nightmares to the monolith, about which it flung its gigantic scaly arms, the while it bowed its hideous head and gave vent to certain measured sounds. I think I went mad then. Of my frantic ascent up the slope and cliff, and of my delirious journey back to the stranded boat, I remember little. I believe I sang a great deal, and laughed oddly when I was unable to sing. I have indistinct recollections of a great storm some time after I reached the boat. At any rate, I know that I heard peals of thunder and other tones which nature utters only in her wildest moods while I came out of the shadows I was in a San Francisco hospital, brought thither by the captain of the American ship which had picked up my boat in mid-ocean. In my delirium I have said much, but found that my words have been given scant attention. Of any land upheaval in the Pacific, my rescuers knew nothing, nor did I deem it necessary to insist upon a thing which I knew they could not believe." Once I sought out a celebrated ethnologist, and amused him with peculiar questions regarding the ancient Philistine legends of Dagon, the fish god. But soon perceiving that he was hopelessly conventional, I did not press my inquiries. It is at night, especially when the moon is gibbous and waning, that I see the thing. I tried morphine, but the drug has given only transient surcease and has drawn me into its clutches as a hopeless slave. So now I am to end it all, having written a full account for the information or the contemptuous amusement of my fellow men. Often I ask myself if it could not all have been a pure phantasm, a mere freak of fever as I lay sun-stricken and raving in the open boat after my escape from the German man of war. This I ask myself, but ever does... There come before me a hideously vivid vision in reply. I cannot think of the deep sea without shuddering at the nameless things that may at this very moment be crawling and floundering on its slimy bed. Worshipping their ancient stone idols and carving their own detestable likenesses on submarine obelisks of water-soaked granite. I dream of a day when they may rise above the billows to drag down in their reeking talons the remnants of puny, war-exhausted mankind. Of a day when the land shall sink and the dark ocean floor shall ascend amidst universal pandemonium. The end is near. I hear a noise at the door, as of some immense slippery body lumbering against it. It shall not find me. God! God! That hand. The window.
0: The window! Well, remind me next time not to order the fish. (laughs) Our next story involves an ancient house. With an even more ancient relic inside. To which all are forbidden to touch. But as we know, forbidden things can be...
2: The Evil Clergyman by H.P. Lovecraft I was shown into the attic chamber by a grave, intelligent-looking man with quiet clothes and an iron-gray beard who spoke to me in this fashion. Yes, he lived here, but I don't advise you doing anything. Your curiosity makes you irresponsible. We never came here at night, and it's only because of his will that we keep it this way. You know what he did. That abominable society took charge at last, and we don't know where he is buried. There was no way the law or anything else could reach the society. I hope you won't stay till after dark, and I beg of you to let that thing on the table, the thing that looks like a matchbox, alone, We don't know what it is, but we suspect it's something to do with what he did. We even avoid looking at it very steadily. After a time, the man left me alone in the attic room. It was very dingy and dusty, and only primitively furnished, but it had a neatness which shown it was not a slum denizen's quarters. There were shelves full of theological and classical books, and another bookcase containing treatises on magic. Paracelsus. Albertus Magnus, Trithemius, Hermes Magistus, Borellus, and other strange alphabets whose titles I could not decipher. The furniture was very plain. There was a door, but it led only to the closet. The only egress was the aperture in the floor, up to which the crude, steep staircase led. The windows were a bull's-eye pattern, and the black oak beams bespoke unbelievable antiquity. Plainly this house was of the old world. It seemed to know where I was, but cannot recall what I then knew. Certainly the town was not London. My impression is of a small seaport. The small object on the table fascinated me intensely. I seemed to know what to do with it, for I drew a pocket electric light, or what looked like one, out of my pocket and nervously tested its flashes. The light was not white but violet, and seemed less like true light, than like some radioactive bombardment. I recall that I did not regard it as a common flashlight, indeed. I had a common flashlight in another pocket. It was getting dark, and the ancient roofs and chimney pots outside looked very queer through the bull's-eyes window panes. Finally, I summoned up courage and propped the small object up on the table against a book, then turned the rays of the peculiar violet light upon it. The light seemed now to be more like rain or hail or small violet particles than like a continuous beam. As the particles struck the glassy surface at the center of the strange device, they seemed to produce a crackling noise, like the sputtering of a vacuum tube through which sparks are passed. The dark glassy surface displayed a pinkish glow, and a vague white shape seemed to be taking form at its center. Then I noticed that I was not alone in the room, and put the ray projector back in my pocket. But the newcomer did not speak, nor did I hear any sound whatever during all the immediately following moments. Everything was shadowy pantomime, as if seen at a vast distance through some intervening haze, although on the other hand the newcomer and all the subsequent comers loomed large and close, as if both near and distant, according to some abnormal geometry." The newcomer was a thin dark man of medium height, attired in the clerical garb of the Anglican church. He was apparently about thirty years old with a sallow olive complexion and fairly good features, but an abnormally high forehead. His black hair was well cut and neatly brushed, and he was clean shaven, though blue-chinned with a heavy growth of beard. He wore rimless spectacles with steel bows. His build and lower facial features were like other clergymen I had seen, but he had a vastly higher forehead, and was darker and more intelligent looking, also more subtly and concealedly evil looking. At the present moment, having just lighted a faint oil lamp, he looked nervous, and before I knew it, he was casting all his magical books into the fireplace on the window side of the room, where the wall slanted sharply which I had not noticed before. The flames devoured the volumes greedily, leaping up in strange colors and emitting indescribably hideous odors, as the strangely hieroglyphed leaves and wormy bindings succumbed to the devastating element. All at once I saw there were others in the room, grave-looking men, in clerical costume, one of whom wore the bands and the knee-breeches of a bishop, His face set itself into a grim expression, but I could see his right hand shaking as he tried to grip the back of a chair, the bishop pointed to the empty case, and to the fireplace where the flames had died down amidst a charred, noncommittal mass, and seemed filled with peculiar loathing. The first comer then gave a wry smile, and reached out with his left hand toward the small object on the table. Everyone seemed frightened. The procession of clerics began filing down the steep steps through the trapdoor in the floor. The procession of clerics began filing down the steep stairs through the trap door in the floor, turning and making menacing gestures as they left. The bishop was the last to go. The first comer now went to a cupboard in the inner side of the room and extracted a coil of rope. Mounting a chair, he attached one end of the rope to a hook in the great exposed central beam of black oak, and began making a noose with the other end. Realizing he was about to hang himself, I started forward to dissuade or save him. He saw me and ceased his preparations, looking at me with a kind of triumph, which puzzled and disturbed me. He slowly stepped down from the chair and began gliding toward me with a positively wolfish grin on his dark, thin-lipped face. I felt somehow in deadly peril and drew out the peculiar ray-projector as a weapon of defense. Why I thought it could help me, I did not know. I turned it on full in his face, and saw the shallow features glow first with violet, and then with pinkish light. His expression of wolfish exultation began to be crowded aside by a look of profound fear, which did not, however, wholly displace the exultation. He stopped in his tracks, then flailing his arms wildly in the air, began to stagger backward. I saw he was edging toward the open stairwell in the floor and tried to shout a warning, but he did not hear me. In another instant he lurched backward through the opening and was lost to view. I found difficulty in moving toward the stairwell, but when I did get there, I found no crushed body on the floor below. Instead there was a clatter of people coming up with lanterns, for the spell of phantasmal silence had broken, and I once more heard sounds and saw figures as normally tridimensional. Something had evidently drawn a crowd to this place. Had there been noise I had not heard? Presently the two people, simply villagers apparently, farthest in the lead saw me and stood paralyzed. One of them shrieked loudly and reverberately, Arr, bezer again. Then they all turned and fled frantically. All that is but one. When the crowd was gone, I saw the grave-bearded man who had brought me to this place, standing alone with a lantern. He was gazing up at me, graspingly and fascinatedly, but did not seem afraid. Then he began to ascend the stairs and join me in the attic. He spoke. ''So you didn't let it alone?'' ''I'm sorry.'' I know what has happened. It has happened once before, but the man got frightened and shot himself. You ought not to have made him come back. You know what he wants, but you mustn't get frightened like the other man he got. Something very strange and terrible has happened to you, but it didn't get far enough to hurt your mind and personality. If you'll keep your cool and accept the need for making certain radical readjustments in your life, you can keep right on enjoying the world, and the fruits of your scholarship. But you can't live here, and I don't think you'll wish to go back to London. I'd advise America. You mustn't try anything more with that... thing. Nothing can be put back now. It will only make matters worse. To do, or summon anything... You are not as badly off as you might be. But you must get out of here at once and stay away. You'd better thank heaven it didn't go further. I'm going to prepare you as bluntly as I can. There's been a certain change in your personal appearance. He always causes that. But in a new country, you can get used to it. There's a mirror up at the other end of the room, and I'm going to take you to it. You'll get a shock, though you'll see nothing repulsive. I was now shaking with a deadly fear, and the bearded man almost had to hold me up as he walked me across the room to the mirror, the faint lamp in his free hand. This is what I saw in the glass. A thin, dark man of medium stature, attired in the clerical garb of the Anglican church, apparently about thirty, and with rimless, steel boat glasses, Glistening beneath a sallow, olive forehead of abnormal height. It was the silent first comer who had burned his books for all of the rest of my life in outward form. I was to be that man.
0: Well, the downside to this story is that your spirit is trapped inside the body of an evil clergyman. And the upside is that now you get to use the carpool lane and the small cursed object that glowed. One would think that inside that object might be... GLOW STICKS! Yeah! of three friends who encounter something dark.
3: Rumors of Night by Tony Suing Where I come from, no one stays out past dark. You don't dare look in the mirror in the middle of the night or glance out the window when it's pitch black. There are stories and legends that there are creatures that like to wander around during these times. I've never witnessed any of these rumors before, but I've been told that when my grandmother was little she experienced some of these firsthand. I remember sitting on the living room floor one family get-together while Grandma told her story, and still to this day the images she painted in my head still haunt me. She told us of how when she was younger her and her friends snuck out to go to the park and drink. Not one of them thought anything of it, and that the rumors were just that—rumors. That's until midnight hit, when they were outside. There were three of them, including my grandma, just swinging on the old swings and drinking and having the time of their lives, when they heard a blood-curdling scream coming from the cornfield behind them. They all froze, and slowly turned their heads towards the field trying to rationalize what they had just heard. "'I bet it was just a fox,' my grandma's friend Darcy said. They always scream like that when they're trying to find each other. Just ignore it. They went back to gossiping about what had happened in school that week when they heard another scream, but this time it was closer. The wind picked up a bit, making the leaves above them rustle with an eerie sound. You know, I think we should probably go home. It's getting pretty late anyways, and we'd all be dead if our parents caught us sneaking back in our houses, said the other friend Katie. Yeah, I guess you're right. Plus, it seems to be getting a bit chilly out, my grandma said. You both are just scaredy cats. Are you really going to let a fox and some wind scare you that much that you want to go home when we never get the opportunity to go outside at night? Whatever, y'all can go, but I'm going to stay right here and finish my beer. Katie and grandma got off their swings and started to head through the park back home. They only got to a wooden fort that was built in the middle of the park when they heard another scream back towards where the swings were. "'Darcy?' Katie yelled. "'Please, she's just pulling our legs. "'She wants us to be scared out of our minds and come running back to her.'" Another scream rips through the night, a scream that sounded like it would be the definition of pain and horror. Both Katie and my grandma sprinted back to where they left Darcy on the swings, but she wasn't there anymore. Instead, there was a trickle of blood on the swing where she sat. "'No,' breathed my grandma, and Katie started to silently cry. There were only a few streetlights in the park that lit up the road, otherwise most of it was encased with shadows at night. The swings were tucked in the far back of the park next to a shelter. Reluctantly, the two friends decided maybe Darcy fell off the swing and went to the shelter to find some water to clean the wound, still not wanting to believe that the town rumors might be true. They slowly pushed open the door to the shelter and it was pitch black and there was no electricity to the building. They silently listened to see if they could hear their friend, and they did, or what sounded like her. On the other side of the dark building, they heard a whimper and sobbing. "'Darcy?' my grandma called out, and the sound stopped. "'This isn't funny anymore. You're hurt. Let's go home!' As soon as the words left my grandma's lips, Katie let out a scream towards the window. My grandma spun around and looked to where Katie was staring, and that's when they saw that the rumors were true. For looking back at them through the window was a figure, backlit by the streetlights, enough that they could make out the golden strands of hair covered in blood. Enough light cascaded upon the face for them to see Darcy smile, but not her eyes. Her eyes were completely black, and there was blood smeared on her face as well. Katie started to cry again, and they took a step backwards towards the door when the creature that looked like Darcy smiled a toothy grin to show even more blood. With the flash of the smile, the creature disappeared, but the fireplace in the shelter ignited by itself, making the girls scream. The room flooded with light. There, where they heard the whimpering, lay Darcy. Her body mangled and bloody, but her face, she didn't have a face, and her hair was chopped off. Well, more like ripped off her head. Katie and my grandma took off out of the shelter, sprinting as fast as they could through the park, trying not to look at anything but what was right in front of them. They were almost back to the wooden fort when they first heard Darcy's scream, and they saw a shadow run from a tree into the fort. They stopped dead in their tracks, panting for air, and frantically trying to think of what to do next. Carol, what what do we do? Katie said to my grandma. I, I, I don't know. We could try to get to the road and run in the light, maybe. And with that plan, they took to the road and ran as fast as their legs could take them back to the closest house they could get to, which was Katie's. They grabbed the door and didn't even care if they were quiet anymore. They just wanted to feel safe. Now in the sanctuary of Katie's bedroom, with their adrenaline wearing off, they began to sob uncontrollably. Loud gasping of air and wailing consumed the room, and soon the house caused Katie's parents to wake up. They frantically got to the bedroom to console both girls and asked what happened to both girls, and they told them everything. With horror in both parents' eyes, they looked at each other and nodded as Katie's dad left the room with her mom and hugged them both. Grandma never knew what Katie's dad did after he left the room, but the next day it was announced that Darcy had gone missing. The whole town went on a search to find her or anything that led to her whereabouts. My grandma and Katie were told to go look around the park for any information on what happened to Darcy. Both girls, confused that Katie's parents didn't tell anyone anything, went back to the park. They went to the swing and saw that there was no blood. They walked to the shelter and cautiously pushed open the door. Inside there was nothing, absolutely nothing. Darcy's body wasn't laying in a pool of blood anymore, in fact. There was no sign that there was blood in here in the first place. Confused and becoming frightened again, the girls went back to the town hall, which was the meeting place for the search. They reported they found nothing and went to go find Katie's parents. After they found them, they asked what happened. No one knew about the creature in the night and what happened to Darcy's body. The parents just looked at them both and said, I have no idea what you girls are talking about. Darcy's body? The creature in the night? Girls, Darcy ran away in the middle of the night. Shortly after the search was called off, Katie and her family moved away. No one ever talked about Darcy again. Even her parents erased her existence from their lives. Grandma's story would end there, and she would refuse to answer any questions about it. Sometimes I think that the three friends just got really drunk and imagined everything and that Darcy did run away that night and had always planned to. That her family was so embarrassed about her daughter's behavior that they decided it was best to act like she was never born, as evil as that may be. Years have passed since I first heard that story and I'm living on my own now. I still find myself avoiding the mirrors and windows at night every now and then, but I'm young and need that nightlife. I've never seen anything in the dark anyway, and everywhere I go is always lit up, so I think I'll be just fine. The story is just a fading memory of my grandma now. It's Friday night, well, I guess technically it's Saturday morning, and I stumble through my front door. Way too many drinks tonight, but it was so much fun after such a stressful week. I head to the bathroom to wash my face, but I stop before I walk in. The mirror. Why am I thinking about this now? There is nothing in my mirror. It's fine. Just go wash my face. I turn and look at my reflection. Nothing is there. No sign of anything evil. I sigh and I continue washing my face. I head to the kitchen to grab something to eat when I hear what sounds like a fox somewhere outside my window. My blood runs cold. It's just a fox. It's not like I haven't heard them before, I think. I'm just jumpy because I've had too much to drink and I was thinking about the mirror. I start to calm down and continue to rationalize things to myself. I grab some leftovers from the fridge and spin around towards the dining room. There in the window, over the table, stands a dark figure. My body goes completely stiff when it moves into the light to show its black eyes and bloody smile.
0: (laughs) That's one window with a view that I would not want. Thank you all for joining us on this very special Paranormal Dad's Halloween Spectacular. And happy Halloween.
2: <laughs> <laughs> After a time, the man left me alone in the attic room. It was a very dingy and dusty. But it had neatness which shown it was not. uh.
1: (laughs) But neither ship nor land appeared, and I began to despair in my solitude upon the (laughs) heavy.
2: windows were a bullseye pattern and the black oak beams bespoke unbelievably and, twic- and go, da, 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 da.
1: I tried morphine but the dug the dug the dug?
2: The light was not white but violet and seemed less like true light than the the, the. Finally, I summoned up courage and propped the small object up on the table against a book, and then (coughs) turned.